on this episode of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. Pledge did a lot of research. He interviewed Lefty Rosenthal. He interviewed Frank Collada. He interviewed other people who were involved in the actual events of the time. He also read trial transcripts from the later skimming cases uh, that brought down the whole the whole story of Casino. So it is very factually based. And Scorsese really wanted it to be as close as possible to the actual story. In Spanish, its name means the Meadows. You might know it as the entertainment capital of the world, lost wages, or simply Sin City. Of course, I'm talking about fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. On average, 42 million people visit Las Vegas every year, and I'm one of them. I love this city. The sights, the sounds, the shows, the people, the history. I want to share all of it with you. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 87 of the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Before we get into this episode of the show, I want to thank my guest from the last episode, Janice Waugh, the founder of Solo Traveler World, a website and online community devoted to people who love traveling solo. I get a lot of questions from people about doing solo Vegas trips, and Janice was kind enough to jump on the podcast to talk about how to plan a solo trip, mistakes to avoid when traveling solo, how to stay safe while traveling solo, and much more. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives wherever you get your podcasts and search out episode number 86, Going Solo, or head to the website at jeffdoesvegas.com. All right, here we go. On to the show. In my opinion, the movie Casino, directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Sharon Stone, is an absolute classic and a must-watch for any Las Vegas fan. If you're not 100% familiar with it, Casino tells the story of Sam Ace Rothstein, an expert sports handicapper who's sent to Las Vegas by the Chicago Outfit, a.k.a. The Mob, to run the fictional Tangiers Hotel and Casino and the skimming operation happening within it. The film, which just celebrated its 25th anniversary, is based on actual events and pulls its story from the book Casino, Love and Honor in Las Vegas, written by Nicholas Pelleggi, who, along with Scorsese, wrote the screenplay for the movie. As always, whenever a book based on a true story makes a move to the big screen, there are certain aspects that tend to be overly dramatized or even flat out made up for the sake of entertainment. My guest for this episode of the podcast is here to help shed light on some of the fact versus fiction aspects of Casino. Jeff Schumacher, who's been here on the podcast with me before, is the vice president of exhibits and programs at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. Jeff was kind enough to join me to help separate reality from fantasy when it comes to the world of Lefty Rosenthal slash Ace Rothstein. Did hotel security actually smash a cheater's hand with a hammer? Did an FBI airplane really run out of fuel and land on a fairway at the Las Vegas Country Club? Was there really an issue with blueberry muffins? We get the answers to these questions and many more. Please enjoy my conversation with Jeff Schumacher. 
Martin Scorsese and, and Nick Pelleggi were wrote the screenplay uh, for Casino, and and Pelleggi uh, wrote a book, a nonfiction book, uh, that the uh, that the movie is based upon. And so Pelleggi did a lot of research. He interviewed Lefty Rosenthal. He interviewed Frank Collada. He interviewed other people who were involved in the actual events of the time. He also read trial transcripts from the later, you know, skimming cases uh, that brought down the whole the whole story of Casino. So, uh, you know, it is it is very factually based, and Scorsese really wanted it to be uh, as close as possible to the actual story. But as they always do when these things are based on a true story, they always tend to add a few elements of of drama into into these movies, because I guess in spite of how interesting the story is, there still would be a level of boring (laughs) if you just if you just went straight into the story of this. Well, not only that, you have the the uh, three hour, you know, it's a three hour movie. So first of all, it is kind of a long epic movie. So, you know, uh, uh, Scorsese was battling with the producers over that. They, you know, movie studios generally do not like longer movies because that means they can show them fewer times per day in the movie theater. But, uh, you know, he really wanted to get as much of the story in as he could. The but the reality is, how do you tell a 15-year story in three hours? So you have to cut things, some things out. You have to merge some things together. And often, you have to like change the order of how things happen so that they make sense for the, the person sitting in the movie theater. And, and so, yes, their liberties were taken, uh, for sure. Uh, but there's, 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 a, there's so much truth, you know, Facts are one thing; truth is another, right? And there's so much truth in this movie that it uh, it really surprised a lot of people how how close it comes to kind of the way things really went down. So I wanted to bring you on to talk about the whole fact versus fiction aspect of the movie Casino, and I kind of broke it down into three separate categories. I thought we talk about the people the places, and then some of the more memorable events and incidents that are portrayed in the movie and, and kind of talk about how close to reality they are, whether it was, it was truth or whether it was heavily dramatized or whether it was just complete and utter BS. <laughs> so I think we, starting with the people, the characters in this movie and, and in, in this, in this film, how close were they to their real life counterparts? I mean, obviously there were some name changes thrown in there, but as far as the characters themselves, how close were they? Yeah. So why don't we start with the three main characters, you know, the Robert De Niro character, the Joe Pesci character and the Sharon Stone character, um, each of whom is based on a real person. Uh, in this case, uh, you know, Robert De Niro is Lefty Rosenthal uh, uh, Nikki Santoro is uh, Joe Pesci is Nikki Santoro, who is Tony Spilatro, and Sharon Stone is uh, Jerry Rosenthal, Lefty's wife. Well, uh, those actors tried very hard to uh, to to act and to uh, to speak uh, and to think really like the real life characters, and and they really put a lot of effort into that. You know, almost a form of method acting where they. They, they, they did so much research on these characters that they their, their mannerisms are similar in many cases. The, 
the way they talk, uh, similar. Um, Oscar Goodman, uh, the lawyer who plays himself in the movie and who knew the real-life characters uh, in this movie, said that Pesci and Stone, in particular, uh, perfected the style and mannerisms of, of the characters they played. Now, Robert De Niro did his best, but he, he looked nothing like Lefty Rosenthal. They're very different-looking people. But even after at that, uh, uh, De Niro wanted to, to try to approximate Lefty's uh, mannerisms and style, and he actually met with Lefty down in Florida and spent time with him and, you know, picked up on, on the different aspects of his character and his, uh, and the way he thinks. And so I think with those three characters, they are as close to reality as you're going to get, uh, in a movie. Um, now beyond that, you have other individuals who are playing real life characters and, and not so much trying to, uh, look like them, trying to act exactly like them. So for example, um, Dick Smothers uh, plays the Harry Reid character on the, the, the Nevada Gaming Commission. Uh, you know, he may have seen, uh, you know, video of Harry Reid and, and tried to emulate him to some extent. But, you know, Reid, especially at that time, was not much of a, a character. He it was not, weren't certain things. He was kind of a, just a regular kind of a boring guy. And so it was kind of hard to, uh, you know, probably hard for Dick Smothers to try to act like him. Uh, but, you know, he played him in the movie. Um, Alan King, the, the great, you know, comedian and actor, he played the Alan Dorfman character. And Alan Dorfman was the person in charge of the Teamsters Central States Pension Fund, which funded a lot of this casino construction and so forth uh, for the mob in Las Vegas. I don't think Alan King was trying to, to be Alan Dorfman, you know, because people wouldn't know one way or the other anyway. You know, it's not like Alan Dorfman was a household name and, so he was just being the best actor he could. Uh, so for the most part, you, you, you really need to focus on those main three characters to look at the comparisons with the real life people. Um, the one other exception to that is Oscar Goodman, as I mentioned, who played himself in the movie. And so, you know, he kind of did a pretty good job of uh, impersonating himself. It's, it's interesting that you bring up the, um, the difference in appearance between Robert De Niro and, uh, and Frank Rosenthal. One of the first times that I went through the museum and I saw some of the, the information and exhibits about, about Rosenthal, I looked and went, and this sounds weird to say, he doesn't look like a scary guy. De Niro looks like a scary mobster kind of guy. Rosenthal did not. <laughs> No, you know, Rosenthal was tall. Uh, he was thin. Uh, he, uh, you know, by the time of all this was going on, his hair was thinning. And, you know, he had almost an aristocratic air to him. He's very smart uh, and, uh, and, and somewhat sophisticated in that way. And, and this is obviously not the typical mob uh, image that you see. Um, but, but the truth was that he made, if he, if he had... Uh, uh, not had such a uh, a past record uh, of his you know uh, bat you know his betting schemes and and different things that had gone on. People might have in fact bought him as a as a legitimate frontman for for you know for the the stardust uh, because he he looked very much like the you know the the other you know sort of more corporate more uh, business like 
uh, managers of casinos in Las Vegas that, you know, that were starting to come online in the seventies. So yeah. And then De Niro, you know, has has a long history of playing mobsters in movies and, and uh, he he has a good way of looking scary. uh, Even if in real life, you know, he's maybe not that way. One of the things that I recall us talking about on one of our earlier conversations was um, Frank Collada appearing in the movie Casino. And he was he was kind of on set initially as a almost like a technical consultant. And he got roped into appearing in the movie, right? Yes, he did. And what's, what's sort of in, really interesting about that is the, the great character actor, Frank Vincent, who was in so many mob movies in his career. He played the Frank Collada character. So so Frank Vincent is Frank Collada. And meanwhile, Frank Collada is behind the camera with Scorsese giving him technical advice about the movie. And then it comes to light that, uh, you know, Collada is not uh, uh, impressed with a particular scene. It's a hitman scene where a man is, is going to be killed. And uh, and it's not going well. And, and Scorsese doesn't like it. And and Collada doesn't like it. And Collada explains to Scorsese, that's not how it went down. That's not how uh, it happened. In other words, this, this is based on a true mob hit. And, and uh, it comes to pass that Scorsese uh, learns that it was Collada himself who had done the hit. He was the, the guy who had committed that murder. And so uh, ultimately Scorsese asks him, uh, to take on the role. It's not a lot of words. It's not a lot of actor dialogue that needs to happen. It's more action. And so uh, Collada agrees uh, to do it. And it ends up uh, really, it's a sequence with, I think, uh, three uh, murders that occur in short order. And uh, Collada is the hitman. And he, he is the lead character in those three scenes shooting people. And, uh, you know, so uh, it's true. He, he is a character in the movie, and then he actually is in the movie as, I guess, a separate character. Did they know at the time that he was who he was when he was when he was doing that, or was this just one of those things of, hey, let's okay, this guy seems to know what he's talking about. Let's let him do it. I think Pelleggi and Scorsese knew uh, that they certainly knew that Collada uh, was uh, was a mobster working for Tony Spilatro. They knew that he had been busted for a big uh, burglary uh, that, you know, ultimately forced him to become a government witness or he decided to become a government government witness, went into witness protection. uh, And they knew all that. It's but it appears they did not know that the very scene that they were shooting was based on a, a, a killing that he had committed. And so that's the the one thing they they didn't quite put two and two together on. <laughs> I, if I was the, the actor that was involved in that, the one that was actually getting murdered, I think I would have been a little concerned if I'd known. <laughs> well, that's, that's a fair, uh, that's a, uh, uh, that's a fair observation because, uh, you know, Collada, you know, he wasn't a big guy, uh, but you know, he wasn't always an intimidating kind of guy too, you know, like a De Niro, he could, you know, give you the look. And, uh, you know, you, you could be concerned. So, yeah, yeah. I, I imagine the guy to, you know, has a, especially when the guy's putting, when Collada's putting a gun to your head. You know? Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Wow. Let's make sure that thing's not loaded. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, something I did want to talk about was the casino that, 
they used in the movie versus real life. I mean, they did make a lot of changes between the book uh, and the movie. Uh, real life, it was the Stardust. In the movie, they used the Tangiers as the fictional casino that uh, Ace Rothstein was running. Um, why did they make the decision to use a fake casino rather than the real the real place was it legal reasons was it a case of um the stardust didn't want to be associated with the movie uh why was that i, I think the main reason uh both for the names uh the character name changes and for the name of the casino being changed was for legal reasons so the stardust was still operating at the time the casino uh, uh opened in 1995 and it really i think the people who ran it the boy group they didn't really want to their casino to be associated with, you know, this movie all about the mob and skimming and so forth. They had really escaped that whole story and, and they were the ones who were cleaning things up at the Stardust. So there's, first of all, there's that. And then all the name changes, I think were a product of also not wanting to uh, really cause any trouble for uh, the Chicago outfit. You know, <laughs> the Chicago mob was still operating at the time, still doing its thing as it is today. And, you know, start naming names of people who were in prison or people who were not in prison. And you definitely might have an issue. So uh, from that standpoint, I think it, they thought it would be easier to change, just change the names and, and even the, you know, some of the other facts as well. Yeah. And I mean, for the sake of, of the movie, I guess it made sense to focus on just one particular casino, whereas in reality, uh, Rosenthal was running multiple properties in Vegas, correct? That is correct. So the, the way the movie uh, makes it look, uh, there's just the Tangiers uh, Casino, and that's what Lefty's involved in. In, in fact, the Argent Corporation, which was the corporation that, uh, that Lefty was working for, technically, uh, there were four casinos. There was also the Fremont downtown, the Marina, and the Hacienda. And uh, you don't hear much about them. Uh, it, it's not clear if there was skimming going on at the other, uh, at two at the Hacienda, but there definitely was skimming going on at the Fremont downtown. So uh, that doesn't really get into the movie. And that's part of that simplification, you know, for the three hour time format. And the movie is filled with tons of great moments that, that are, are really big in the plot line and big in the storyline. And I wanted to go through some of the more memorable moments from the movie and and find out whether or not they were accurate, whether they were slightly dramatized, or whether they were complete and utter BS, as we mentioned earlier. So we'll start right off the top of the movie. One of the very first scenes in the movie is uh, a, a car bomb exploding in a parking lot. This is something that actually happened. The car bombing, uh, the bombing of, of Lefty Rosenthal's car did, in fact, occur. It happened in 1982. It happened in the parking lot between the Tony Romas and the Marie Callender's restaurants on East Sahara. Neither of those restaurants is still open today, uh, but uh, the Marie Callender's just closed recently. Uh, but he, was, he, was, he had been eating at the Tony Romas. He comes out, gets in the car, uh, and then it blows. And uh, uh, he was in the driver's seat uh, when it blew. He was injured, uh, but he was saved from death by a couple of things. One, there was a steel plate that was placed as a stabilizer under the driver's seat of that Cadillac Eldorado uh, model that he owned. 
Uh, so this saved him because the bomb was under the car. So that really protected him. The second thing is that his door was still open at the time that the bomb went off. So he was able to be, he was thrown from the car out the door. If he had been, if the door had been latched and he had been inside, he probably would have been engulfed in flame and that would have been it. So, uh, you know, the fact that the door was open uh, also saved him. Um, so the, the car explosion, uh, again, I, uh, it happened there. The move, it was actually filmed at the Main Street Station uh, Casino in downtown Las Vegas. You can tell if you've been to the Main Street Station, you can easily see it in the movie. You can easily see where it was shot. Uh, it wasn't the way, it, so they changed the location and they changed sort of uh, uh, the perspective. It makes it look like it's outside a casino instead of uh, at a restaurant. So let that be a lesson to you kids. Always start your car with the door open. Uh, <laughs> another one of those uh, really memorable moments is also relatively cringeworthy. Um, Ace catches some guys cheating in his casino. They're running a, a racket cheating on blackjack and they use a hammer to smash the hands of one of the cheaters to send a lesson. Is this something that actually happened? So according to Rosenthal himself, this indeed did happen. And, and that it was a, there was a syndicate of card cheaters that were actually not just uh, causing problems at the Stardust, but at other casinos in town as well. And so when they caught them red handed uh, uh, later red handed, but uh, uh, Rosenthal said that security officers actually used a rubber mallet uh, to crush his right hand, the right hand of this uh, of this card cheat. And uh, you know that's really happening pretty late, if you think about it, in the uh, in the Las Vegas history arc, because you would totally have expected something like that to happen in the '50s or maybe the '60s, but. We're now talking about the mid to late 70s when this is happening. So this is definitely an old school way of dealing with a card sheet. Yeah, I don't feel like there's a lot of hand breaking going on right now. It's more like lawsuits and uh, and being kicked out. <laughs> I agree with that. And, you know, that's not to say it never happens. But uh, uh, the, the really the last place I think that was doing that kind of thing was Binion's uh, downtown, Binion's Horseshoe which was uh, accused in the 80s and, and, and I think even into, well, certainly in the 80s, they were accused of some rough handling of uh, problem guests. Next, I want to talk about the, um, the Frank Rosenthal show, which in the movie is portrayed as the Ace Rothstein show. Um, I know this is a real thing. I know it actually happened because I've seen clips of it on YouTube and it's possibly one of the most terrible, most bizarre things I've ever seen. Um, perhaps you can explain why um, Frank Rosenthal was doing a television show. Well, you know, a lot of people wonder about that. And, and Rosenthal himself uh, said a couple of there were a couple of reasons why he did that. Um, you know, one was that he wanted to. Well, let's be honest. The first reason he did it was because he had a big ego and, uh, you know, he wanted to be on television. He enjoyed the, the, the ability to do that. Uh, but beyond that, uh, he, he wanted a platform where he could talk about problems he was having with the gaming control board, with, 
different regulators because this was something that really upset him. He believed that he was a legitimate businessman and that all of these problems were unfairly being let, you know, being placed on his back. And he wanted to form, and he often would speak on the show about the problems he was encountering. But, but really, the, probably the biggest reason he did it in his mind was that he wanted to show that he was, uh, that he was uh, the mark. If he's the marketing guy, if he's the, the person in charge of entertainment at the casino, it's only logical that he would showcase entertainment at the casino on a television program, that kind of thing. So he thought it, would, it helped his front if you will, it helped his image as someone who was not a backroom skimmer. You know, he, in fact, he was front and center for here I am right in front of you, you know, once a week, you get to see me on television. And um, it was absolutely ridiculous. This was a terrible show. Uh, He was not a good host, Uh, but he did get some very big name guests on the show, including Frank Sinatra, Muhammad Ali was on the show. I mean, he, because of, partly because of Stardust, partly because of him, a lot of these uh, really big-name entertainers came on the show. Do you think that there's a chance that maybe some of those people appearing on the show were not necessarily there because they wanted to be in that I know I've heard stories and, and read various stories about um, entertainers at the time being told, okay, either you do this or you never do this ever again. Do you think that maybe there was some of that intimidation factor of, hey, you do lefty show or you're done in Vegas? I think uh, I think there certainly was uh, uh, situations where they thought, you know, normally I wouldn't do a show like this. But because it's Lefty Rosenthal, because he's associated with the Chicago mob and the influence that Chicago mob has in the entertainment industry, as well as other industries, I better go ahead and do it. You know, and uh, so, yeah, I think there's some of that. I don't know if, you know, Lefty had the power to say you're ruined in this town uh, forever, but he certainly uh, was someone you didn't want to get in your bad side. And I think I'm sure that was uh, the thinking for uh, a lot of these folks who went ahead and, and went on the show when they would not otherwise have done something like that. In the movie, Nikki Santoro, Tony Spilatro comes to Las Vegas and ends up getting banned from every casino in the city. Is that something that actually happened to the real-life Tony Spilatro? Uh, Yes. Uh, In 1978, the Nevada Gaming Commission placed Tony Spilatro uh, in the Black Book. And the Black Book is the the list of excluded persons, as it's called at the state level. Uh, This list would be people who were uh, um, not uh, trusted, to be in a casino and for whatever reasons. Uh, and it started out when they started the black book in the uh, 1960, uh, you know, it was mostly mobsters in the book on the list. Uh, later it became much more focused on cheaters, uh, people who were uh, involved in, in like robbing casinos or cheating at cards, cheating slots, whatever it might be. And uh, that became more of a focus later. Uh, there's a lot of legal argument on both sides of the, you know, the constitutionality of this, uh, uh, of this black book. Uh, and it was fought, you know, uh, Tony Spilatro fought it. Lefty Rosenthal fought, uh, fought being included in the black book. Um, Oscar Goodman was their lawyer for those, uh, those battles and they were not successful. The black book, uh, continues to exist today. 
And him landing in the black book, was that kind of a precursor to him um, going out on his own with these little side gigs? I mean, he was uh, one of the founders of the Hole in the Wall gang, correct? Yes. Now, the Hole in the Wall gang started before he was banned from the casinos. Okay. Uh, but, but yes, because of, uh, you know, the fact that he couldn't go in the casinos, it, it just gave him probably more, more time to, uh, to think about, like, other schemes that he could become involved in. Uh, I would put it that way. And the hole in the wall game kept upping the ante uh, to the point where in 1981, their, you know, their ill-fated last burglary of Bertha's, uh, which was a local department store and jewelry store. And they were going to make a, a huge score at Bertha's in 1981. And ultimately there was, there was an informant inside the group and the FBI and the local police were on, you know, they were watching this whole burglary unfold. As soon as they get inside the building, then, you know, then the roundup occurs. And uh, that was the end of the hole in the wall game. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think Spilatro, when he um, was no longer allowed in the casinos, first of all, that took away, um, you know, his rec- some of his recreational uh, pursuits. He, was a ga- he liked to gamble himself, uh, and uh, he liked to go to the shows and all that kind of stuff. And he, he couldn't do that anymore. And, and I mean, Nikki Santoro and Tony Spilatro figured in a lot of different spots in this movie. And one of them is probably, I would say one of the most disturbing parts of the movie <laughs> is when he's got a guy's head in a vice and he tightens it so much. The dude's eyeball pops out and it just freaks me out every single time I see it. Um, is this a legit story or again, is this one of these things that gets popped into a movie just for, for drama's sake? I got to believe if you were to ask the average viewer of casino, whether they think that's a true story, they would say, Oh, of course not. That's, that's gotta be made up. It's right out of a superhero type movie or something special effects. Well, in fact, it really did happen. (sighs) And that's the, uh, that's probably even more disturbing uh, aspect of it than anything else. So back, but it didn't happen when, that's as part of the timeline issue in the movie. Uh, this happened when uh, Tony Spilatro was a much younger man. He was trying to make his bones in the Chicago outfit, and it was 1962. And what happened is these two guys, Jimmy Miraglia and Billy McCarthy, uh, were were kind of part of a kind of a burglary robbery ring that uh, Frank Collada was in charge of, frankly. And uh, and these guys though made a big mistake. They uh, went into a, uh, a bar and they killed these two mob-connected brothers, the Scalvo brothers, and they had no permission to do this. In other words, you know, the outfit would decide whether people were going to be killed or not who were connected. And these guys went out on their own and, and did that. Uh, that was a no-no, and it was time to round them up and uh, take care of them. That was the outfit's perspective. So they put Tony Spilatro on the case. Uh, and, and he got McCarthy, uh, and he put him in the vice and he said, Hey, I need you to reveal the location of your partner, Jimmy Miraglia. And at first he wouldn't do it. You know, he wouldn't say, uh, he finally did (laughs) after his eye popped out, he revealed where Miraglia was hiding out. Uh, and then he would, so McCarthy then was killed and then they went and went and found Miraglia and killed him as well. And that was became known as the M&M murders, uh, Miraglia and McCarthy. 
and the uh, and and Spilaxer was always sort of linked to these, but he wasn't charged. And uh, years and years went by before we fully understood the whole story of what went down uh, in 1962. But that is uh, believed to be a true story. And uh, uh, one of the funny, it's not funny, it's one of the things we've thought about at the museum is whether that vice that he used uh, to do that is actually in evidence in Chicago. In other words, whether the police took that vice as a, as a piece of evidence and they have it in their evidence vault. If they do, uh, we would love to actually borrow that and put that on display at the mob museum because there'd be considerable interest. I think I would. Yes, I, <laughs> I absolutely. It would be, it would be one of those, uh, very unique displays. I think that people would, uh, I mean, you've got to have it so that people can put their head in it. I mean, let's be honest, as, <laughs> as disturbing as that would be, that's, that's the ultimate photo op right there i think <laughs> i think so now you know i will mention uh one of the things that uh we were really pleased about is when we had the 25th anniversary event with surrounding casino back in november the uh the uh, uh stuntman who was in the vice the 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 actor was uh available he was we interviewed him via uh via zoom uh, during the program, and he was re- replaying the whole scenario of the filming of that, and it just was a it was a riveting, uh, riveting description of how it all went down. I can honestly say, if I had my head in a vice, it, similar to the Frank Collada situation, if I had my head in a vice and Joe Pesci was standing over me, swearing at me and twisting it, no matter whether or not that was a movie prop or not, and no matter how carefully orchestrated and planned out the whole situation and scene would be, I would be concerned. <laughs> well, I would too. And, uh, and you know, it's kind of, if you think about vices, it's something to think about today, uh, think about how big that vice had to be to fit someone's head in there. So it's like one of those big industrial vices. You know? Oh my God. <laughs> um, in the end, Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen this 25-year-old movie, um, the Santoro brothers end up getting theirs. They end up dead, murdered, uh, buried in a cornfield. Is that how it happened in real life? Is that how Tony Spilatro met his his demise? It's similar, but not the same. And this is, a, this is an interesting subject because at the time that Nick Pileggi was writing this screenplay, there were many people who believed that Tony and Michael Spilatro were killed the way it is depicted in the movie. In other words, there no, nobody had ever been arrested for their, their murders, which happened in 1986. And, and their, their bodies were found buried shallow in the shallow graves in an Indiana cornfields, just over the state line in Indiana. Uh, people, many people believed at the time that they were buried alive. Uh, that that's kind of how it went down, just like in the movie. Now, later, you know, evidence came forward, you know, witnesses, uh, government witnesses testified in the uh, family secrets trial in 2007 as to exactly how this all went down. And what what we learned is these uh, Spilatro brothers were actually killed in the basement of a suburban Chicago home, uh, presumably a, a home owned by a mobster. And they were beaten to death down in the basement. 
then their bodies were taken and transported to this cornfield in Indiana where they were buried. Um, the only unknown at this point then is, okay, were they meant to be found or were they meant to never be found? Uh, you know, if you bury them deep enough, they might never be discovered. But in this case, they were discovered. It didn't uh, seem to be uh, uh, that hard because it happened a couple of weeks later. So uh, uh, that's the question. Did they want to be found? Did they want to never be found? Otherwise, we know they were killed uh, uh, before they were brought to the cornfield. Now, am I mixing up my mob movies? Am I mixing up my Goodfellas and Casino? Or was it a similar situation where Tony Spilatro thought he was going to be made and then ended up getting murdered? Because Joe Pesci met a similar fate where he ends up beaten to death um, in Goodfellas as well, did he not? Yes, he did. Uh, there's an interesting parallel. There are several interesting parallels between Goodfellas uh, and Casino, which are fun. But the what you're referring to is why uh, uh, Tony and Michael Spilatro were going to Chicago to meet with their fellow Chicago Outfit uh, brethren uh, at all. And what is, it is believed that Tony and Michael uh, were going to become made men, that when they walked down into this basement uh, in suburban Chicago, there was going to be a ceremony and they were going to become made men. Also that, uh, uh, that, that Michael would be promoted. In other words, there was, so this was all very positive. You know, Tony and Michael were like, yay, we're going to go back to Chicago. This is going to be a great thing for us. Uh, going to elevate us within the Chicago outfit. There was even chatter. I'm not sure if it was coming from Tony himself or from others that Tony was the heir apparent to run the Chicago mob. Uh, and maybe that might've been true, uh, you know, if he had survived this, but uh, obviously he did not. Uh, so um, they were there under the, a very different impression about what was going to happen. And so they get down in the basement and that's when the, uh, that's when the uh, beating to death ensues. So I'm not crazy and I'm not mixing it up. There is no. a parallel there. Okay, cool. I just, again, I wasn't sure that you see these two movies and they're two of my favorite movies that I've watched a million times each. So they just, they kind of start running together at times. <laughs> well, and you know, there is, it's, it's almost intended that way in the sense that, you know, it was Pelleggi and Scorsese again, who wrote and, and directed both movies. And they're really seen as, the second and third parts of a trilogy with mean streets being the first one that's Scorsese's 1970s movie about the mob. So you've got mean streets, Goodfellas, and casino. And there is some logic to seeing those as being connected. Gotcha. Okay. Um, one of the other big scenes in the movie involves Las Vegas country club and an airplane landing in the fairway. And, the story in the movie is, of course, the airplane has run out of fuel because they've been surveilling them. The FBI have been uh, doing surveillance. They run out of gas and they land. Fact or fiction on that? So it's a, it is a fact that the that an FBI surveillance plane landed on the uh, fairway at uh, at Las Vegas Country Club. Uh, the only change, and I'm not sure why you need to change this for maybe for dramatic effect, is it wasn't running out of gas. They were having mechanical problems. So it's a minor difference, but uh, it is absolutely true. It's an embarrassment to the FBI that this happened. Uh, this is not the the only time, you know, the FBI has, has been somewhat comical in the way it surveils people. Uh, there was a, 
a famous uh, situation in the 50s when uh, Benny Binion was being surveilled in Las Vegas uh, at his home. There were FBI cars, like, you know, a short distance away from the home. And what would typically happen is the uh, Benny Binion's wife, Teddy Jane, would, have, would make sandwiches. And then she'd ask her kids uh, to walk out and deliver these sandwiches to the FBI agents waiting in their cars. And uh, these, these agents, I'm sure the first time that happened, are like, holy cow, what's going on? These kids are walking toward our car. But uh, didn't, you know, that's what, all it was. Uh, so, yeah, the, uh, the plane thing really did happen. Again, something you would, uh, the average viewer would probably say, oh, I'm sure that's made up. And then finally, the one that cracks me up every time, blueberries in the blueberry muffins. There's a, a scene where, <laughs> where Robert De Niro and Ace Rothstein is, is complaining about the fact that there are, there's a, a, an uneven amount of blueberries in the blueberry muffins. This one's got a ton. This one has none. <laughs> is this a real thing? Did this actually happen? So it, it really happened with a slight, a slight change. Uh, you know, um, as Oscar Goodman will tell you, Rosenthal was a perfectionist. I mean, he really was very demanding on his staff at the Stardust about cleanliness, about, you know, proper uh, handling of different things. And, uh, for example, if he saw garbage on the, on the floor of the casino, uh, he, would, he would pick it up himself, and then he'd find out who was responsible for that, and then he'd probably fire that person. You know, I mean, he was... He was very meticulous about it. And we've had other casino owners and operators that way in Las Vegas. Uh, Steve Wynn was like that for a time and other, other people. But Rosenthal was, was a stickler. And Rosenthal's feeling was that he knew uh, this business so well. He knew what people wanted. And there was, to some extent, that was true. Well, when it comes to the blueberry muffins, the story is that uh, in a movie, Rosenthal wants – exactly the same number of blueberries in each muffin. And the chef or whomever says that's very hard to do. And he encourages him to figure out how to do that. Now, the only difference between uh, reality and fiction there is the story, as I understand it, is Rosenthal said there must be at least 10 blueberries in each muffin. So there could be 12, there could be 13, but there could be not be nine. There has to be at least 10 blueberries in every muffin. So that could be uh, solved by just putting a lot more blueberries in the muffins, right? Right. So uh, that's obviously what they had to do. <laughs> that's just amazing to me. It's, it's, the, it's almost I'm not quite bordering on Howard Hughes' craziness, but it's, it's, it's getting there. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, it, uh, it is, although I will say that as a blueberry muffin aficionado, I certainly prefer more uh, blueberries to fewer blueberries. Right? <laughs> it's all about the blueberries. So uh, I, I will, I will sympathize with lefty on that one. <laughs> um, Jeff, you guys still have the exhibit going on at the mob museum celebrating the, uh, the 25th anniversary of the movie. What kind of stuff can people see if they, they go and visit this exhibit? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's not a big exhibit, but there's a we've really packed it with a lot of really cool items. We have, uh, for example, uh, uh, memorabilia from the movie. Well, what's interesting about the Tangiers Casino is it's sort of taken on a life of its own. It's a fictional place, and yet at the time of the making of the movie, they created all of the different branded 
items that a casino would typically make. So there are coffee cups and there are, you know, uh, uh, the playing cards and there are casino chips and all these different things that have the Tangiers logo and the Tangiers on it. And so we have a number of those items on display uh, for, for people to see. Uh, we also have, uh, like, as you remember from the movie, there's a few moments in the movie where newspaper front pages are displayed. And the reasoning is to show you how things are looking to the public. In other words, here's what we see from Lefty Rosenthal. Here's what the public is seeing in the headlines. And those newspapers that were produced were produced at the Las Vegas Sun newspaper. And uh, by a, a friend of mine, actually named Brian Allison, who designed those pages, and he uh, still kept some of those printed copies of his own uh, for himself, and he donated those to the museum. So we have those those actual newspapers that were printed for the for the movie uh, in on display. We also have uh, some of interesting items from Oscar Goodman that are like the invitation to the premiere of the movie. The invitation, you know that, and then he also got some personal thank you cards from Martin Scorsese from Sharon Stone. Uh, because one of the interesting things that happened during the filming of the movie was that um, Oscar and his wife Carolyn were convinced that these folks needed a home-cooked meal, these big stars. And uh, so they'd been in Vegas for so long, living in a hotel. He wanted to invite them over to his house. So he invited all these people over to his house when they had a very nice dinner, home-cooked meal. And, uh, and, and so afterward, Thank you notes, of course, were sent with, with flowers and whatnot. And Oscar still has those. So you see the handwritten notes from Sharon Stone, from Martin Scorsese, and others. And um, so we, we have those things and more. And uh, I think it's, it really helps people to understand the making of the movie a little better. Very cool. Jeff, again, thank you for jumping on to, uh, to talk about this today. This was, this was tons of fun and I, I appreciate you being able to come on and, uh, and share all these stories. Well, thank you for having me. I like talking about the, uh, the movie casino and the people who are involved in it. There's no shortage of, of great material there. And of course, if people want to find the mob museum online, you guys are online and all over social media. How can people go about getting in touch? Yeah, we're at, of course, themobmuseum.org, and our website is constantly evolving, new information, new content, uh, new programs that we're putting together. I, you know, there's just so much that we're doing, including uh, coming up, we actually have an expert from, uh, from Canada who's going to talk about organized crime in Canada, Stephen Mikowski. Uh So look for that program. And then another thing I was going to, if I could mention, we have our YouTube channel, and uh, the video of our 25th anniversary of of casino is on there. And I encourage everybody to take a look at that. You'll see Nick Pelleggi and Oscar Goodman talking about many of the things we talked about today. Excellent. Jeff, thank you so much again. I really appreciate this. Thank you very much. I'll post links to the mob museum's website, social media, and YouTube channel in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com. And if you want to listen to Jeff's past appearances on the show, jump into the archives wherever you get your podcasts and check out episode number 22, Mob Rules, or episode number 62, Howard Hughes, Aviator, Innovator, and Las Vegas Legend. Also, be sure to click on the Vegas Book Club link to order your copy of the book Casino, Love and Honor in Las Vegas by Nicholas Pelleggi. (laughs) 
And that wraps up another episode of the podcast. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. You can also drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been episode number 87 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. Oh,